Well, good evening. Take your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Some of you look very unnatural sitting in that position. It's not your right place. Church is going to tilt to one side. Exodus chapter 20, verse number 13. When people are asked to name the Ten Commandments, one of the ones that most of the people come up with is commandment number six, which is thou shalt not kill. But that doesn't mean that people today all agree on its scope or its intention. In the King James translation, this reads, Thou shalt not kill. But it's probably better to understand the word kill to mean murder. In fact, scholars tell us that there are eight different words in the eight different Hebrew words in the Old Testament for killing. And the two that are translated don't murder were carefully chosen to distinguish exactly what they meant. The sixth commandment is not a blanket forbidding of killing, but rather a specific prohibition of murder, the intentional taking of human life. Dr. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Seminary, said it well when he wrote, when the Lord wrote these words on tablets of stone, he wrote murder. It is murder that is the issue. Now, murder is nothing new to the human race. The first murder is recorded in the Bible in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain killed his brother Abel. Yet it should be recognized that the 20th century holds a record of murder on a massive scale. If we just consider four men, Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao, Mao, Mao Taesung, they can then together be held responsible for 175 million deaths. That's not including individuals like Pol Pot, who almost single-handedly uh, destroyed Cambodia, or Idi Amin in Africa, or many others like them. In fact, a whole new word had to be coined to describe this new level of carnage that did not exist prior to the 20th century, and that term is genocide. The law of Moses makes distinct distinctions for various degrees of guilt concerning the Sixth Commandment, just as our modern laws do. For example, Exodus chapter 21 and verse 12 describes first-degree murder. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Exodus chapter 21 and verse 14 describes premeditated murder. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Exodus chapter 21 and verses 18 and 19 describe attempted murder. If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but he is confined to his bed and if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time 
and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. We must, however, make one sharp distinction in our definition of murder. We said it is the intentional taking of human life. Animal right activists go too far in applying this commandment even to the killing of cows, chickens, and pigs as food. And tonight we're going to try to come to an understanding of what this commandment prohibits and what it does not prohibit. First of all, we want to look at what this commandment does not prohibit. First of all, hunting is not a violation of the second commandment. The killing of animals for food or for clothing or for some useful purpose is not murder. In Genesis 9-3, we read, Every moving thing that, li that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now, personally, I don't believe that God would have us to kill anything just for the joy of killing it. So that we can brag about how many of them we have killed or having killed the largest one or anything like that. I further believe if you're going to kill it, you ought to eat it. That's why I don't kill deer. It also is true of accidental death. Accidental death is not a violation of the sixth commandment. That's the unintentional killing of another person. God would not have us kill anyone, of course, but there are times when someone's actions may unintentionally cause a death. But God has provided that that person will be not held guilty of murder. Numbers chapter 35 and verse 11 and 12 say, Then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And then in verse 15 it says, these, cities, these six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. God has set out that human life is sacred, and he forbids any intentional taking of human life. But knowing that someone may die of an accident, God has provided cities of refuge for the one who caused the death so that no one out of anger or revenge could take their life. Now, in a day in which justice was in the hand of what was called a blood avenger, this commandment really sought to curb ruthless vengeance. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel regulations for the formation of cities of refuge where anyone who had unintentionally caused the death of another could flee for safety. How those cities of refuge works was given in Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 4, and this is the cause of the manslayer who flees there that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in times past. But as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. 
Even today, accidents can and do happen, and people die as a result, and that's bad, but that's not murder. It is also not true of self-defense. Self-defense is not a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Deuteronomy, I mean, rather, Exodus chapter 22, verse 2 says, If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. God's word establishes that one has the right to protect themselves and their family, even to the extent of taking another person's life. Would to God that that never be necessary, but if it does happen, it's not murder. Capital punishment is not a violation of the sixth commandment. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So, Far from forbidding capital punishment, the Old Testament actually commands it. God extends to the state the right to carry out capital punishment. And when the state takes a life in carrying out the due process of the law, it is not murder. When men are sentenced to death, it is not the case of a man playing God. It is a matter of man obeying God. Significantly, whereas in society today we see the killer or the murderer in relation to the harm they do to the victim, the victim's family, and his friends and circle of acquaintance, in Scripture, the murderer is always seen as an injury to God himself. The killer is guilty of taking a life of one created in the image of God. And lastly, killing in war is not a violation of the Sixth Commandment. According to Deuteronomy chapter 20, and I will not read all of Deuteronomy chapter 20 for you, but you certainly can go there later. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, the Bible gives regulations for warfare. Would the Bible regulate what it expressly forbids? That wouldn't make sense. No, of course not. That is not to say that war is ever good, but sometimes war is necessary. God laid upon us the duty of protecting the weak, and it is obviously impossible to do that without sometimes having to fight the strong. War should be avoided whenever possible, but when a soldier kills in warfare, it is not murder. So what does this command forbid? Well, first of all, abortion is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. During World War II, the Nazi regime killed six million Jews, and we rightly called it a holocaust. But since abortion was legalized in the United States in 1973, according to the National Right to Life, there have been 58 million 586,256 children aborted. But that's a moving target because it is estimated that there are over 3,500 abortions in this country every day. In our day, people seek to justify abortions by saying it is not a person, it is a fetus. One of the arguments, as inane as it is, 
is over when does a fetus become a person with rights. There are various positions taken on that. Some hold that life begins at conception. Others believe that life begins at implantation. Others believe that life begins when it takes human form. Some hold that life begins at animation, when they are able to move. Others believe that it begins at viability, which means they are able to survive without the mother. Others believe that it begins at birth. Some even argue that life does not begin until sometimes after birth, perhaps as much as a year. If you wonder where America's present policies are taking us, consider what Professor Peter Singer said. He wrote a book entitled Practical Ethics. He said, killing a defective infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Sometimes it's not wrong at all. Singer, who is considered the father of the international animal rights movement has said that children less than one month old have no human consciousness and do not have the same rights as others. Therefore, he said, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Singer rejects birth as the relevant dividing line between a person and a non-person, and he advocates that parents be giving an assessment period of a week, or perhaps a month, he isn't sure which, during which they can, in consultation with their physician, decide whether to legally kill their disabled child. If they decide that it would increase the total happiness of all the interested parties. What makes Singer's statements all the more alarming is that he is the professor of bioethics at Princeton University. Can you believe here is a man teaching our young people who apparently believes that an animal has more right to life than a month-old baby with a physical handicap. But the Word of God expresses that that personhood takes place at the moment of conception. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, For you, were form, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lower parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Abortion is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Criminal negligence is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. According to Exodus 21, 29, where if an ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past and had been known to his owner and he was not kept confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, that ox shall be killed and its owner shall be put to death. 
The Old Testament law illustrates the principle of intent and neglect. An owner of a man-killing ox could not be held guilty if that animal had no history of aggression toward people. Yet the animal must die, and the owner was forbidden to profit from his sale or its death. But if the ox owner had an ox or a similar animal who he knew to be aggressive and he failed to control the animal, then he was guilty of murder and punished as such. We see that law enacted in our own world today. The principle of intent and neglect still exists. Suicide is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Let me just say, I've dealt with a number of people over the years in the matter of suicide or families after the result of suicide. And we have, through our contact with our Catholic brethren, come to believe that suicide is an unforgivable sin. Catholics believe it's an unforgivable sin because you cannot confess it and be forgiven of it after the fact. Suicide is not an unforgivable sin. It is a terrible, terrible error, but it is not an unforgivable sin. Most of us have been personally affected by suicide, whether by a family member or a close friend or someone we just know. 30,000 people die of self-inflicted wounds each year in the United States. Every 90 minutes... A teenager attempts suicide in this country, and every 30 minutes, one of them succeeds. But God would have us to realize that all of human life is sacred, including your own. You don't choose the time and circumstances of your birth, neither do you have the right to choose the time and circumstances of your death. God gave you life, and he alone has the right to end it. Suicide is a clear violation of the Sixth Commandment. Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century philosopher and theologian, said that suicide was wrong on three grounds. Number one is unnatural. Number two, it is a crime against those that we know. And number three, it usurps the place of God alone who gives and terminates life. Euthanasia is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Euthanasia is sometimes called mercy killing. Any discussion of euthanasia often arouses, at least for us adults, images of Dr. Jack Kevorkian, the retired pathologist who was the champion of the right to die. He was dubbed Mr. Death after claiming that he had participated in at least 130 assisted suicides. Ultimately, he served eight years in prison for second-degree murder. Oddly enough, the, the root word of the word euthanasia means good death. It usually refers in our day to helping a terminally ill patient who is in insufferable pain to quote-unquote die with dignity. But the actual practice bears very little resemblance to that 
high-sounding definition. As currently practiced, euthanasia often involves the withholding of food, food and fluids from a patient whose ultimate death is a result of starvation or dehydration rather than an underlying disease. Euthanasia is a clear violation of the Sixth Commandment. What we often don't realize is that Holland, which has practiced euthanasia for 20 years, if they have conducted a survey there and they have discovered that more requests from euthanasia come from the family than from the patients. In addition, it was discovered that the families, the doctors, and the nurses often are involved in pressuring the patients to choose the course of euthanasia because their situations were helpless. You know, I don't want anybody to make that decision for me. How about you? But what about a living will? A living will is a document that says you do not wish to be kept alive by machines. Some people have a DNR, which means do not resuscitate. It means that if their heart stops, they do not wish for the medical personnel to try to revive them. Some people see that as suicide. But this differs in that it is not an aggressive act to end one's life but a wish not to be kept alive by artificial means. A living will and a DNR are basically saying that you live, leave your fate with God. They are not playing God, rather they are relying on God. There is no scriptural directives about a living will. Because there were no ways in biblical times to keep someone alive or to revive them by artificial means. It can sometimes put us in a very untenable position. In the early 80s, my sister, Linda, had a hysterectomy. I was in seminary. I was working full time in addition to that. And I didn't come home for her surgery. I got a phone call that said, you need to come home now. Your sister's dying. I came home to find that during the night after the surgery, something had happened to Linda. And they had, since she was in the hospital, they rushed her to the uh, emergency room. They put her on life support. And after about three days it was ultimately determined that my sister was brain dead and that her organs began to shut down one at a time. It was a terrible position to have to be put in to say, turn off the machine. And that's sometimes the position we put ourselves in in this modern world. Sometimes it's unavoidable. But I certainly have no problem with someone who says, I don't want that. I don't want to be kept alive that way. Just this year, my brother very quickly became ill. They rushed him to the hospital. And over the course of the next eight hours or so, they did everything imaginable to uh, save his life. And everything only made things worse. 
And ultimately, once again, we had to say, please turn the machine off. He suffered long enough. He's not going to make it. So that's not what we're being talked about when we, we those who would say, well, that <clears throat> is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Now, Jesus puts it on the new level. He says that hate is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. You might well think that this commandment does not speak to you because you've never killed anyone. Let me share this story with you. Leonard Holt was a paragon of respectability. He was a middle-aged, hard-working lab technician who had worked at the same Pennsylvania paper mill for 19 years. Having been a Boy Scout leader, an affectionate father, a member of the local fire department, and a regular church attender, he was admired as a model in the community. Until that image exploded in a well-planned hour of bloodshed one brisk October morning. A proficient marksman, Leonard Holt, stuffed two pistols in his coat pockets and drove to his place of work. He stalked slowly into the shop and began shooting with calculated frenzy. He filled several co-workers with two or three bullets apiece, firing more than 30 shots killing some men he had known for more than 15 years. When the police arrived, they found him standing defiantly in the doorway and snarling, come and get me, you blanks. I'm not taking any more of your stuff. Be bewilderment swept the community. Puzzled policemen and friends finally found a train of logic behind that brief reign of terror. Deep down within the heart of Leonard Holt rumbled the giant of resentment. His monk-like exterior concealed the seething hatred that existed within. The investigation yielded the following facts. Several victims had been promoted over him while he remained in the same position. More than one in Holt's carpool had quit riding with him due to his, his reckless driving. The man was brimming with resentment, rage that could be held no longer. Beneath his picture in the, in the paper, this caption told the story. Responsible, respectable, resentful. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 5.21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in the da danger of hell fire. What we see in Jesus' words is a definite connection between physical violence and verbal violence. Jesus says that murder begins with the arrogant and egotistical attitude that causes someone to call his brother Raka. Raka means empty head, good for nothing. It seems apparent that saying Raka or empty head or fool to someone 
comes close to writing that person off altogether. We are, what we're really saying is this person doesn't really deserve to live. So when we arrogantly look down at someone and we call them empty-headed, blockhead, good-for-nothing, worthless, idiot, things like that, we need to check our attitude. The sixth commandment is not just dealing with plunging a dagger into someone's heart. It is fundamentally dealing with how we treat people. The sixth commandment is a call to exercise and express love toward one another. It is not given to the, it is not given to the Christian to retaliate or seek revenge, as we saw this morning. Hatred is the root of all murder. Therefore, Jesus says we should love one another. I'll close this evening with this message with just these questions to probe at that problem. Number one, do you find it easy to lose your temper when things don't go your way? Number two, are you carrying around a chip on your shoulder about something or someone from the past? Number three, is your anger keeping you from reconciling with someone who has hurt you? Be careful of what you allow to take root in your heart. Jesus not only condemned the act of murder, but the attitude that allows us to carry hurt and resentment and anger around in our hearts. Let's bow for prayer, and we're going to be dismissed with this prayer. Father, thank you for these who have been so faithful to come tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. It's so easy for us to allow resentment to build up in our hearts and in our lives. And help us, Lord, to not allow resentment to find a resting place. Because in another place, the scripture tells us that when we allow that to happen, when we allow resentment and anger to find a place, we give the devil a foothold in our lives. And we certainly do not want to give him a foothold. Father, as we go out into this world, uh, we run, run across difficult people. And we realize that it's easy to love the lovable but it can be very difficult to love the unlovable. But they are the very people who need it the most. Help us, Lord, to be good examples and testimonies for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. If you have-